My name is Chester Weiss. I'm a distinguished member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories, and my work seeks to understand the propagation of electromagnetic energy in complex geologic systems. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I have a conversation with Chester Weiss on the latest research highlighting how to successfully use geophysical tools at well sites. Chester shares the impact of well infrastructure on geophysical assessment, how to use EM successfully, the challenges of using near surface, and the applicability of this research in other cluttered environments. Along with our conversation in episode 141 on the life cycle of a well, this episode will help provide the full geophysical picture of working at a well. Visit seg.org slash podcast to find the links for this special section. This episode is sponsored by Geospace Technologies. As a leading innovator and manufacturer of wireless seismic data acquisition systems, Geospace Technologies offers a series of seabed wireless seismic data acquisition systems designed for extended duration seabed seismic data acquisition. Geospace is committed to setting new standards for quality, performance, reliability, and cost savings to EMP companies and marine geophysical contractors. Stay through the end of this episode to learn how in under five seconds you can show your appreciation for this free podcast. And now my conversation with Chester Weiss. Well, I'm excited to speak with you on February's special section in the Leading Edge. We're getting a lot of great feedback from readers already. Just happy that we wrote uh, that that TLE featured the life of the well. So when I when I kind of think of a well or, or an area around a well, I think of a lot of infrastructures, you know, tanks, pipelines, power grids. And I, you know, for geophysical assessment, that could be, you know, a death knell, all this noise and, and machinery around. So how does the infrastructure around a well impact geophysical assessment? It has two primary effects, I think, on the data that we record. The first effect is some of these structures that we find in the field, you know, power generators, power lines, things like that, emit their own sources of noise that we detect on our geophysical sensors. They emit vibrations, they emit electromagnetic noise, and so on. And oftentimes, the geologic signal that we uh, seek to recover in our recordings is very small in comparison to this ambient noise that's generated by the oil field environment. And so the first effect is kind of teasing out a whisper in this very crowded room of, uh, of noise. And so that's the... Uh, that's kind of and so a lot of work has, has gone into you know how do you filter out these uh, these sources of noise from the uh, well field or from the oil field environment you know how do you suppress them how do you tease out you know these these very subtle uh, signatures that tell us something about the subsurface of the reservoir uh, given the cacophony of noise that's happening around us. The other problem that the infrastructure poses is that oftentimes uh, when we interrogate the ground with um, either a seismic source or an electromagnetic source, the energy that we send into the ground scatters off of this infrastructure in ways that is loud and cover a very large uh, spatial extent. And so even though things like pipelines and wires and so on may be uh, very small physically in comparison to like the field scale size of an oil field, they can have a huge footprint in terms of the scattered energy that they generate when we try to interrogate the ground with our uh, geophysical sources. And so the, the problem is compounded then. We have this, this noisy room that we're trying to listen in, and then there are structures in the, in the noisy room that when they get excited, they talk even louder. And it's hard to know 
what is the the real signal from the subsurface when uh, there's all these kind of competing signals that are uh, superimposed on top of it. I really like that term interrogating the ground and and kind of speaking of the the smaller scale stuff maybe that has this huge impact. What, you know, one of the tools in the geophysical toolbox is electromagnetic technology. What has been the evolution of managing these challenges you're talking about while still utilizing EM technology at well sites? Historically, I think that the uh, approach has been to avoid the problem, if at all possible. And so that kept us away from the uh, using EM methods in mature oil fields for a long time, because things like power generators and cables and the, and the well casing and so on can just have these kind of in- incredibly complicated geometries to them, geometries that were difficult for us to predict using computer simulations because they were so complicated. That just kind of kept us away from the mature oil field. Or, you know, when we did go into the mature oil field, you know, we kind of had some some rules of thumb that were based on, you know, hugely simplifying assumptions of what the geometry of these structures might be. But what we've come to discover in uh, in recent years with some advances in forward modeling of the electromagnetic response is that these rules of thumb can break down and that, um, you know, even in, in areas where we thought that, uh, you know, it might be safe to, um, you know, to do an EM experiment in a mature oil field, that the aggregate scattering from all of these different types of, of clutter that's in the oil field really makes the simplifying assumptions, uh, you know, a little bit um, uh, questionable in their validity. And so it motivates the need for, you know, kind of complete oil field modeling and having kind of a complete representation of all of this infrastructure in the simulation codes, because the interactions between all the different elements of the infrastructure are are, are simply beyond our, our intuition, at least beyond my intuition. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The complex relationships between everything happening at a well site. And not only were you involved in putting together this special section and serving as a guest editor, but you also contributed. And and your paper explores case studies on addressing these challenges faced when using EM at wells. How do some of the latest tools help mitigate these challenges you're talking about? You're you're starting to hint at it with, with software and these algorithms you're working on. Yeah, I think that the, um, you know, in terms of how we deploy things in the field, I'm not sure that that much uh, needs to be changed, that, uh, you know, the same sorts of data acquisition systems and sensors and so on that we put out in the field, you know, have a bright future in understanding the the lifetime of the well. I think the the real breakthrough has been, uh, you know, with, with my team here at Sandia and uh, as well as collaborators at uh, Berkeley Labs and University of British Columbia, we've all been kind of zeroing in on how do we bring in this uh, this infrastructure complexity into the simulation, um, into these simulation codes at a computational cost that makes it useful for kind of you know, real-time decision-making. And so we've all had kind of our own different strategies for how we, um, we cut down the cost of these, uh, of these forward codes. But what, what makes these simulations so incredibly expensive is that, you know, things like, uh, like well casing, you know, with an eight inch diameter and maybe, you know, one inch wall thickness. So if you were to discretize this object using a finite element code, you know, kind of a back of the envelope calculation would tell you that it costs you about 10 million finite elements for every kilometer of pipe that's uh, that's in the ground. 
And, you know, reservoirs are on the order of a couple kilometers down. And if you're talking a lateral well, then the, you know, as the, as the well, as the well bore goes horizontal, it can extend out several kilometers in the uh, horizontal direction. And then when you pile on, uh, you know, stacked wells or multilateral wells, you quickly get into this world where traditional methods traditional finite element methods for discretizing just that steel in the ground is going to start costing you hundreds of millions of elements. And that puts you in the world of high performance computing and long run times and uh, nowhere near uh, kind of a real time um, simulation or decision making capability, uh, you know, based on those simulation results. So, you know, various strategies have been employed to cut down this computational cost uh, by kind of simplifying how these, um, how the well casing is represented in the uh, computer code. Some of us, you know, collapse the, the casing down to a, a infinitesimal thin um, filament that works its way through the subsurface. You know, a lot of work that shows that sometimes in certain cases you can neglect the um, interior of the well casing itself and just treat the thing as a solid cylinder. That cuts down your um, your element count in the fine element simulations. Sometimes you can artificially expand the size of the cylinder so that it has kind of an equivalent material property over this larger size or an equivalent um, electrical conductivity over this larger size. And as long as you're not interested in looking at the electromagnetic fields, you know, right next to the well casing, this can be a perfectly appropriate strategy as well. But we're all kind of working in this direction of, you know, how do we um, coarsen the discretization of all of this steel so that it doesn't consume such a disproportionately huge amount of computer resources in our simulations. Yeah, the real-time simulation, kind of a holy grail of the work you're doing. And and moving off of sort of looking at EM methods, what has been the evolution of seismic methods as applied to wells and producing fields? Yeah, so seismic methods, you know, of course, have a, a, a long history in um, geophysical exploration. I think kind of the, you know, the earliest approaches were these uh, vertical seismic profiles where you have an array of receivers on the uh, Earth's surface and you have a source that you lower down hole and uh, record the, uh, the response at, uh, at different shot points down the hole. You know, and this kind of gives you a, a sense of what the um, what the geology is and what the uh, what's happening near the well bore. You know, as a function of depth, as you um, as you lower this source through the hole. Uh, there's been recent work that looks at um, cross well seismic methods. Again, where you have a receiver in one well, um, and then in a neighboring uh, nearby well, you have a a source, and you kind of move these sources and receivers up and down and look at the travel time and the waveforms as the energy goes from one well to the other. And again, this can give you a sense of what the geology is in between the two wells, uh, as well as the wells where the um, uh, the sources and receivers uh, are located. I think more recently, what's gotten really exciting is the use of these downhole seismic tools where you have a source and a receiver that are on the same instrument, and then it's lowered down into the borehole and uh, you can look at reflections as the source, you know, pings off of the side of the um, annulus around the, um, you know, between the uh, the casing and the surrounding geology. That can tell you, you know, when you look at these travel times and these waveforms, 
you can say something about what the quality of the cement job is uh, between the casing and the formation. You can you can say something also about what the surrounding geology is like, and look for defects in the in the casing itself. But this this type of technology, you know, requires you to have an open hole and be able to lower a lower an instrument into that uh, open hole, which um, in some cases, you know, may not be the optimal thing to do. Um, there are other experiments. This was um, highlighted in the Vasco paper in the uh, in the special issue that look at something called the tube wave, where you set off a seismic source near the top of the well, either on the ground or by pinging the well head itself, and the uh, well or acts as a sound guide to um, you know to propagate energy down to the uh, the base of the well and then back up towards the uh, towards the surface and depending on the quality and the timing of this um, of this impulse that you uh, that you measure on the earth's surface you can say something about how deep the well is what's the quality of the um, of the casing itself how well the casing is bonded to the uh, surrounding cement and so on but this is all very cutting edge um, type work and a lot of research needs to be done before we can really start teasing out all the different ways that a, a well can deteriorate over time and what those how those deteriorations manifest in the tube wave response you know, what particular challenges might arise in the near surface when using seismic methods? So the near surface is a hugely disturbed zone. I mean, anyone who's been on a well pad knows that it's far from the pristine earth and that there is um, not only do you have um, these um, exogenic source seismic sources, you know, generators and trucks and people and whatever, you know, milling around. The, uh, the well pad itself is constructed of engineered fill, which has a, a high impedance contrast with the surrounding uh, country rock. There's generally low velocities in the near surface that can uh, you know, introduce noise into the uh, into the seismic signal. There's a great deal of just lateral heterogeneity in the near surface that um, itself produces scattering that then um, is uh, you know overprints the uh, recorded seismic energy, and so all of this disruption that happens during the emplacement of the well and the continual use of the well through its um, production life cycle generates messiness. Uh, is maybe the best way to put it, that causes the, you know, whatever seismic energy you want to put into the ground to be scattered and, and complicated in its, uh, in its response. You know, just looking at these eight papers in the special section, how do you see the techniques and case studies and tools presented across the papers improving using geophysical assessments uh, at a well site? Well, I think that the the techniques that um, that are highlighted in the uh, in the special issue are really kind of emerging technologies, and so we're kind of in this exploratory phase in in seeing you know what is it that we can learn about these wells that are near the end of their life cycle. So it's very I, I think it's kind of an open ended question, but perhaps more importantly is you know the the techniques that we have that that we highlighted. I think they have application to doing geophysics in other types of um, cluttered environments, you know, that, that may not be uh, immediately obvious to the, um, uh, to the oil and gas geophysicist. You know, these, you know, there's ongoing efforts to, you know, try to do geophysics in urban settings, in other um, kind of culturally overprinted settings where we want to find things like, you know, buried infrastructure 
sewer pipes and uh, utilities and things like that. And doing these these types of experiments in the um, urban environment is challenging for very much the same reason that doing the geophysics at the well site is challenging. You've got a lot of stuff in the ground that wasn't meant to be there in the first that wasn't there in the first place, and you've got a lot of noise happening all around you. And so as we see kind of the the urbanization of populations and the need for understanding, you know, what we've done as we've, you know, built these built these cities and continue to grow these cities and understand the geologic hazards that are um, immediate in these cities, that the technologies that we have in the um, that we've developed here in the um, for the oil field problem, I, I think, have a, a bright future for that type of um, application. The other application space that I see is, um, you know, with the recent bipartisan infrastructure legislation, which has a huge amount of re- uh, money set aside to um, do plugging and abandoning of these orphaned and abandoned wells that we have in the United. United States and, and in North America, um, you know, estimates of the number of these orphaned and abandoned wells, you know, many of which are emitting methane in the atmosphere. These estimates suggest that there, you know, maybe tens, tens of thousands of these wells out there. And by an orphaned well, it means that, you know, sometimes we don't know one, we don't even know that it's there to begin with sometimes. And sometimes the provenance of that well is just not recorded in the in the various ledgers that uh, you know in the in the states and counties in which the well uh, resides, and so there's a huge um, effort now to try to under to lo- locate these um, abandoned, undocumented wells, and then furthermore to characterize them so that they can be prioritized for plugging and abandonment to mitigate methane emissions into the atmosphere, which you know we know has um, you know impact on uh, on uh, climate change. So I think that there's a bright future for some of these technologies that we've highlighted in the um, work that I, I think is soon to be coming with um, you know, this massive effort for finding and dealing with undocumented orphaned um, wells. I always appreciate when guests highlight for listeners, you know, part of the papers that just they may not think uh, on its face apply to them. Uh, but looking, I, there's an upcoming interview in this podcast uh, looking at using geophysics in an urban setting. So, you know, this could be a great read to get some ideas and, and support in your own work if you're not maybe working with wells like this. You know, you you talked about how a lot of this technology in, in the paper is kind of exploratory and very new of of the innovations and, and techniques shared in this special section, what are you kind of most excited to see further developed? I think it's all good stuff. I mean, we had, you know, we have a bounty of riches with this special issue with the number of papers and the, the prominence of the authors of these papers. And I think that the opportunities that some of these analyses that uh, that are presented in the uh, in the paper, you know, hopefully I think will maybe help us rethink what are the different opportunities for um, applying these uh, EM and seismic methods to um, to other problems in uh, in geoscience. Well, we will have all the links to this special section in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, but lastly here, stepping back a little bit more to, to give uh, more general advice to the audience, what principle, teaching, or point of view has helped you succeed in your field? I was wondering if you were going to ask this question. (laughs) (laughs) 
there's, I think, a couple of guiding principles. One is be open to serendipity, that a lot of times, you know, opportunities can kind of present themselves. And that, you know, if you if you see yourself as being flexible and being curious and having kind of a core skill set that's translatable across different types of problems, then um, you'll have an exciting career ahead of you. The other principle is probably one that's that has followed me since uh, since graduate school, and that is to um, I'm, I'm very much a, a, a hands-on guy, uh, which is perhaps paradoxical since I'm a, um, a computational person. But when I, when I say hands-on, I'm a I'm a code it myself type of person, and so the the sort of skills that are required for computational science, for applied mathematics, and so on that that allow me to to take a you know to to formulate a uh, a question in terms of the language of mathematics and then translate the that mathematics into computer code original computer code that I can test and exercise and break and push the limits of myself that gives me not a lot not only just a lot of kind of opportunity to explore new questions but it gives me I, I think some confidence that you know perhaps I understand or could understand some of these geophysical signals a little bit you know, in, a, in a way that might not be accessible to me if I had just used kind of canned software or had been a consumer of um, these simulation capabilities. As a creator of the simulation capabilities, there's a, I think, and I, I believe a kind of a deeper insight, which is gained into understanding, you know, how the signals form you know, what is the underlying physics? And, you know, in a sense, the, the computations that I think that I and, you know, my, my, my peers do are kind of a, a virtual laboratory where we conduct, you know, countless, you know, experiments to kind of better understand, you know, get some insight into the physics of how EM waves or whatever, you know, propagate through these just immensely complicated geologic systems. And so for, you know, I, I think that was a skill that I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for from my, from my graduate training is, and it's kind of served me well through my career. Well, there's a clear excitement by the A papers in the special section of interest in, in this topic and could hear it in your voice and really appreciate you sharing the insights of, of the articles and your own article as well. And thank you for your contributions uh, in this leading edge and, and serving as a guest editor. Appreciate spending time on, on this special section for others. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. And my, you know, my co-editor was uh, Mike Wilt at uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories. I'm, I'm grateful for that partnership. He made co-editing this uh, special issue um, just a real treat. SEG produces Seismic Sound Off to benefit its members, the scientific community, and inform the public on the value of geophysics. To show your support for this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Simply go to Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on your phone. It takes less than five seconds to leave a five-star rating and is the number one action you can take to show your appreciation for this free resource. And follow the podcast while you are on the app to be notified when each new episode releases. Original music created by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off. <laughs>